I love the honesty of that song, Come Thou Fount. I think we relate to it universally because of that line in there, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We do so often, don't we? Trade in all that's good for us. What's been promised to us by a great, giving, loving God. And we kind of say, I'm all set. I got it. I'll figure this out on my own. Well, I've appreciated the last several weeks of messages that we've received from 1 Corinthians. Um, I appreciate it for two reasons. The, the immediate application that we need as a church going through what we're going through, but also um, where I, I had been praying and intending to take us going forward through 2 Corinthians. So it serves as a great setup for where we're going. And uh, the, the important thing to keep in mind is we're setting up a, a new series or a letter as we go through 2 Corinthians is it's important to get some background, but rather than facts and figures and, and dates and all those kinds of things, I think the kind of background that would be most helpful to us as we're talking about this Corinthian conflict, I'm going to call it, between Paul and this church is the tone that is being set, the cultural influences that are coming into the church and all that Paul is dealing with. We remember just from the first few chapters of Corinthians that we've heard over the last several weeks that there was a mindset that was starting to brew in the Corinthian believers in that church saying, um, I'm going to pick the leader I like and all these kinds of things. And it was it was just the tip of the iceberg of what was going on, what was systemically wrong uh, with the church at the time, that they would even come to the place where they would feel like they could almost like doing trading cards. Well, Paulus has these stats and Paul has these stats and everything. It's very important for us to think about and apply for today for faith in 2019. But, but the deeper issue that's going on in Corinth is one that Paul is going to deal with again and again and again. We have two letters on record that Paul sent to this church. One in the middle got lost. And we believe as the Lord put the scriptures together and gave us what we call the canon of scriptures is that this was all under the Holy Spirit's um, doing that the, the scriptures that we have are what were meant to be preserved. And so this middle letter that got lost, what would have otherwise been the true second Corinthians, we're going to just chalk up to be like there that it got to the people that needed to hear it. It didn't make its way to us. And so we're going to trust that. But Paul does reference it. As we go through this letter, Paul has been uh, putting in the time with the Corinthian church. He goes and establishes it. Uh, The Lord raises up a faithful couple, Priscilla and Aquila. And with the help of Timothy, they spend a year and a half. They're building the church up and they're strengthening it. It's very difficult. I I see lots of church planters today and and how difficult it is to start a church, to stay in their midst, um, to to find leadership when the church is so young and to raise that leadership up and disciple that. Now, add to that the pressure of being back in like 50 A.D. and not having Uber or Southwest Airlines or whatever the region would be called if you had an airline out there. Um, any of those things where Paul is about ready to journey on because the Lord, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, is going to send him to do more of this elsewhere. So Paul is being sent away, trusting what's going to happen to my baby. I know they're shaky. I know they're rocky. There's a lot going on in the culture at the time that means that this isn't going to be a, a spiritually mature environment to begin with. 
So Paul is away from them now and he's concerned about how they're doing. So he can't make his way back yet because of all the circumstances. So he says, Timothy, take this letter. And that's the letter that we know to be 1 Corinthians. And Paul is addressing errors that he's already aware of, things that are, are coming back to his ears, things he needs to deal with. And in, in 1 Corinthians, he says some very direct, very strong things. He says, there are things going on in your midst that, that aren't even happening outside the walls of the church. That wicked sinners aren't even guilty of some of the things that the people claiming to be the church of Christ are guilty of. And he says, and, and not only that, but there are so, so many decisions that you need to make that I don't even need to be present to know what you need to do next. Why are you playing around with this? Why are you delaying? And so Paul writes a very direct and forceful letter, but it's, it, there's so much compassion being dripped through the whole thing. So I'd encourage you, as we're going through our study of 2 Corinthians together for many months down the road, that you would get some more background from 1 Corinthians so that you know this is what Paul is trying to do. But you get more of Paul's heart if you understand the, the dynamics that are involved and in, in how it's taken him this long to address these things. Well, that letter accomplishes some things, but more needs to be done. So Paul shows up. Paul goes and he goes and sees his people. And you can imagine, I mean, he knows there's trouble. He knows there's drama, but these are his peeps. He knows these people. I know. Peeps is like out in 2015, right? I'm a few years late on my lingo. So he goes and he's like, and, and imagine him wanting to show up. He's like, oh yeah, there's things to correct, but I know they're going to, they're going to hear what I have to say. We're going to straighten a few things out. We're going to get this thing back on track. Paul had confidence that the hearts of the believers there were ready to receive him, ready to hear more instruction. He was looking to spell out, probably underscore some of the tough things he had to say in, in the first letter that he sent. And as I'm directing in my mind this movie of what happens when Paul arrives for his next visit, I can't help but think of like maybe like a classic 80s movies where they're, everyone's getting ready for the big dance or the ball. And and, and the, the sadness and the tragedy that's about to unfold is, is sort of that awkwardness that I think most of us have felt when we're trying to figure out, have I picked the right outfit? Did I get the right date? Can I borrow my parents' car? Any of that sort of thing. And then you show up and you're anticipating, you're nervous, but you're excited. You get there and you pretty much get snickered at because your suit's out of date. You get laughed at or talked about. You hear the whispers behind, behind your back because your date's not pretty enough. Or maybe it started right from the beginning of pulling into the parking lot and people are like, that's what you showed up in? You see, there's this sad, when we look back at our teenage years, I know some of you are teens now, but when we adults look back, we, we either were that person to laugh and snicker or we were that person to receive it. You're like in one of two camps, right? But all of us look back and go, I wish I wasn't that person. Or I wish I didn't make that count so much when people laughed or said those things. Cause, cause we're, we're crueler the younger we are. Right? So to me, this imagery helps me understand what Paul is walking into because Paul refers to this visit in, in chapter two of, of second Corinthians as a painful visit. What he anticipated to be exciting, what he anticipated to be restructuring, getting them back on track, instead cut him right into the heart, just stabbed him right in the heart. Because there was problems going on in Corinth that maybe he knew and maybe he anticipated, but the severity of it was something that Paul took very, very personally. 
Part of what's going on in the culture here in Corinth is the fact that it, it's really not too far removed from what we would anticipate being sort of early 1900s America. Picture New York, Chicago, San Francisco. Picture these places in the early 1900s where there isn't a lot of like um, name legacy or or land aristocracy or any of these kinds of things. It's a it's a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of environment. It's you're going to be self-made if you can make it. In New York, you can make it what? Anywhere. Anywhere. So that mindset is one of determination, one of success that is self-earned. You know, we've heard the the phrase coming from, uh, you know, history of immigration in America. You know, they came, uh, got off the boat without a penny in their pocket and then worked their way to be able to participate in the American dream. To buy that house, to raise the family, to have that lot of land. I'm in America. I made it. Very similar mindset was happening in Corinth. Rome's rebuilt the city. It's only been a few decades that things are in full swing. It's a, it's a major harbor town. There's all kinds of activity coming in. As far as Rome is concerned, Corinth is like top three in all the cities and all the things going on. So you can imagine strategically why God would plant the gospel there because with everything coming in and moving out, if the gospel takes root there and is sent along with those that have heard it and said, okay, I can do this or I'm receiving Jesus as my savior and I'm going to follow him in the way is how it was referred to then. If I'm going to follow the way, but I have to go on because I'm not staying here, I'm making my, my buck and I'm moving along. Then all of a sudden the gospel starts going like this. Places Paul can't even get to. So it's strategic. But with all of this comes an arrogancy. With all of this comes pride. We, we know it all too well, right? That self-made sort of I did it my way. The anthem of New York. Preachers have called it the anthem of hell. Um, you know, it's, I did it my way. I answered to me. I belong to me. I, I set my own destination, destination. I, I make my own luck. So Paul is dealing with a very similar mindset. And this was beginning to infect, I would say beginning, but maybe it walked right through the doors was beginning to affect the church. If I'm constantly surrounded in an environment where my expectations of what success look like, and I'm impressed with those that have made it for themselves, and I start to want to participate in the dream and get my own and everything, and then all of a sudden, meek, humble, somewhat timid Apostle Paul keeps bugging us about getting our lives back on track, stop focusing on worldly things and all this stuff. Eventually, I'm going to start to diminish who he is because of all that I see that's cool and growing and flourishing and successful looking around me. This is why they were quick to start saying, I want this guy, not this guy. And this person over here was more impressive than the other one. They were starting to do their little trading cards. And Paul wasn't measuring up. With a little bit of whisper in their ears, he was seen as somebody who was actually weak and a failure. We think this is strange to us. We're looking back on Paul's life. As the church who's come centuries later, we're like, we really appreciate Paul's surrender. We appreciate Paul's brilliance in the way that he lays out the gospel, how he teaches the church doctrine. We look back on Paul and we say, this guy was a hero. It's a no-brainer to us. But to the Corinthians, what they saw was somebody who was poor. He was always raising money for somebody else. In this particular instance, 
He was raising money for the poor in Jerusalem. He was timid. You'll see oftentimes in his letters, especially to the Corinthian church, he'll say things like, um, I, I wanted to speak to you more boldly in person, but instead I've sent it in a letter. It's almost this understanding of, I can't quite muster the courage to say to your face what I can easily write down. And isn't this who we are? How many of you are much bolder on Facebook than you'd ever be face to face? It's interesting that we call it Facebook when it's really hiding in a closet. I don't agree with your views. And I'll take you on in the alley. Then you see him in the grocery store. Hi, how's it going? Missed you. There's an aspect of this that Paul, I think, kind of admits to. I can't imagine it. I can't fathom it personally. I picture this guy who was a go-getter, somebody who was tenacious. They also had a problem with the fact that Paul's ministry reports when he would come see them were always these accounts of suffering. I mean, the world was really kicking Paul's rear end, to put it politely. And uh, he was suffering. He was in anguish. He's going to talk to us about that going forward in a couple of chapters. But he's really struggling. And so the people are looking at this going, oh, wait a second. Apostle, if you're locked and loaded like you say you are, if we're to follow your leadership, how come everybody else showing up has these letters of recommendation? They have these stories about all the great things God's doing in their ministries and everything. And you come along saying, you got money for me? You come along saying, boy, have I got a doozy for you, man. We were floating out at sea for days. I didn't know if we were going to live or die. Really, Paul? Like you supposed to be on top of things? They had really diminished Paul's strength and Paul's leadership because of their personal preferences. So he sends 2 Corinthians after sending a, a letter, like I said, that we've lost. He goes home and he thinks about it. Fortunately for us, let me just back up for a second. Fortunately for us, the second letter that he sent, we have indication that it actually worked. That there was a huge wave of repentance that moved through the church. There was still a lot that had to be done. But Paul, and he sends this second Corinthians letter, he says, thanks be to God that you repented, that you started turning things around. So he must have hit him pretty hard. He must have pulled out all the stops. So not wanting to just be okay with, are we good face to face? Paul wasn't thinking, oh good, they accept me again. I'm just going to let sleeping dogs lie. Out of his compassion and his care for the disciples of Jesus in that church, he says, I'm going to step on the gas pedal just a little bit more. I can tell that they're immature, that they're shaky. Yeah, we had a good heart to heart. Yeah, we kissed and made up. But they need further teaching to make sure they don't slip into this again. This is the letter that we have now, him pressing further in. And he's going to teach us some very important things as he um, defends his authority for like two-thirds of the letter. Paul needs to. They've put him in a corner. He has to talk about himself, has to talk about his strengths, has to talk about his accomplishments. And you're going to see him basically, dare I say in church, he's kind of throwing up in his mouth, kind of going, I can't believe I got to talk like this. You've pushed me to a brink. You, you've made such a big deal of accomplishments and awards and this and that. I'm going to tell you where real awards lie, what real qualifications look like. So he needs to defend his authority to them. So he's going to teach them about things like where true comfort is found. What is the purpose in our suffering? 
How do you value integrity? Not just respect it and appreciate it, but how do you internalize it? How do you truly take on a lifestyle of integrity? Are you pursuing and granting forgiveness? You can imagine that the relationship between Paul and these folks really needs this a lot. And as I said, what are the real qualifications for ministry or leadership? He's doing this all in the backdrop of trying to prove to them, you can trust what I'm saying. The Lord sent me to you. Secondly, he also needs to uh, see through the collection. He promised bringing money to the poor in Jerusalem. If things go belly up with him and the church in Corinth, he shows up with less money to help these people. So there's an added motivation for him to fight through and say, let's clear up our stuff because we've got bigger fish to fry. This can't all be about you and me. There are other people depending on us getting our act together. So he teaches the true purpose of giving. And then lastly, what Paul needs to do is to drive out this infection or this tumor or this cancer that, that after he's away and the leadership gets weak, comes running right in, starts a whisper campaign and starts getting them all shaky again. So he's going to teach them a better path to disciplining your church. He's going to remind them that there are things that we can boast about, but they're not the things that they expect. So after giving you a little background on what's going on, helping us understand the mindset and the turmoil, we're going to read the greeting to this letter. Just the opening two verses is all we have time for this morning. And we're going to try to figure out what this really means for us today. So here's what Paul writes. First two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. I keep wanting to say Ikea. So uh, I have been stressing about this for three or four weeks. I've written down the pronunciation. So if I say Ikea, it's because my wife makes me go there whenever we're in Boston. So it's going to be burned in my brain. Ikea. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's greeting is doing what we would expect from any letters. He's saying, hey, I'm Paul. You're the church at Corinth. He's establishing authorship. He's establishing location. I will admit to you that as I read this, I glance past it because all Paul's letters sound very similar to that. It's a polite greeting. It's the way to get started upon first blush. When we start thinking about what's really going on between the relationship with Paul and this church, I think we can apply much deeper meaning to this greeting and not be far off the mark. But in order to do so, what I think I need to do is I'm going to pull this out of church realm for a second, just so we can set our mindset again with what Paul's dealing with. I, I remember we were in a church um, before coming um, back to Maine. We were a church in Boston. And one of the things that we endeavored to do is to teach. It was a small church. It was easy to get people to show up for well, for almost anything, there wasn't a whole lot going on there and stuff. And so we, we said, um, we would like to have somebody come in and teach us how to plan our finances better, make better stewards of our lives to handle God's money and stuff. And so we knew a contact, a humble man, a godly man who was also a certified um, financial planner. And he came in and did a series of evening classes with us so that we could get a better handle as God's people, how to um, uh, treat our money, not being our money as God's money and that we were to be faithful stewards of it. So it was real effective. He was a really great and gracious guy and uh, a really humble guy. 
and really knew his stuff. He had all the letters after his name, like, you know, ABC, AT&T, KFC, all those things that financial planners have, all those, you know, dot, dot, dots and stuff like that. Had all those things, never mentioned them, never came in, never talked like that. His car was was fairly nice, but it was a few years old. His suits were adequate. They weren't overly flashy. Um, I knew he and his wife personally, I knew that they didn't have a big house. In fact, because they had no children, they didn't need a lot of space. They had a much more humble kind of efficiency apartment off of somebody else's house and everything. I'm going to be honest with you, uh, being young and impressionable and, and nowhere near as gray as I am now, meaning less wise. I had a certain expectation of this man walking through the doors. He's going to talk to us about in my limited understanding how to make money. If someone's going to come through the doors and tell me how to make money, I want to see it in their life. So I'm going to sum it up with how shiny is the suit? How new is the car? How big is the house? Now, there's enough going on in my mind from growing up reading the scriptures and stuff that's saying, okay, that stuff will burn up. That's not really where, you know, um, the Christian life is and everything. But I had this bias that if someone's going to be the expert in something, it should be all over them. It should be so obvious. And it wasn't with this guy. Turns out he was right on just about everything he've said. I've been, I've been repeating his advice for 20 some odd years now. He knew what he was talking about. But because he knew what he was talking about, he didn't have to wear his credentials on the outside. He was practicing what he was teaching us. If you waste money on fancy suits and expensive cars, I mean, you're not setting yourself up for the future. I mean, so it was, it was really brilliant that he was living it out. But my expectation was, I was, we were in the big city. Everybody else that was doing well in the big city, you could see it. Some looked the part and couldn't afford it. So that was part of the mindset, the cultural impression I had. So Paul is dealing with the same thing. He's walking in and they're saying, show us your credentials based on the success of your life. So let's come back to the greeting and let's, let's be over analytical on some of these phrases. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by who popular demand by the will of God. People Paul is saying, lest you forget, need I say it again? That I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, whether you recognize it or not. Timothy, our brother, is still with me. We're ministering faithfully. I'm writing this letter to who? You wicked, slothful people in Corinth? No. You pains in my rear end in Corinth? No. To the church of God that is at Corinth. Lest you forget... That you are a church, that you didn't come up with the design of the church, you didn't come up with the method and the, and the mode of church practice, lest you forget, Corinthians, that laughed me out of the gymnasium, lest you forget, you are the church of God, who happens to be in a particular location of which there are many. You're in Corinth. And all the saints in Achaia, not Ikea, all the saints in Achaia are watching in the region. As to how you do this. So of course our immediate impact would be. We are the church of God in Waterville. We are the church of God in Waterville. That is being witnessed to by the saints in greater Waterville. Or or Kennebec Valley. Or, or central Maine. Or even the population of the great state of Maine. 
There's implication in that. So rather than this just being a polite greeting, hey, it's Paul, I know you're in Corinth. He's making his point just by his introduction. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've got to break this down. What is grace? What is peace? What does it mean that he's speaking to them in this manner? And I just want to make a couple of quick points, hopefully quick. And one is, is that Paul is saying, in essence, that we don't belong to us. You and I, in 2019, are not the authority of what's best for us. The believers in Corinth are not the best uh, uh, determiners of what is best for them. They don't just answer to them. And Adam and Eve in the garden were not the authority of their own lives either. Mankind since then has been trying to be the authority since then, but it's not the way it should be. We don't answer to us. Paul says, even I, the apostle, belong to Christ. This wasn't my doing. We don't have time to get into it, but Acts 9 talks about the, the, the way that Jesus re, uh, rescues Paul from his life of tenacious persecution of the church. Jesus interrupts him on the road to Damascus, blinds him with light. He can't see for three days. And the risen Savior says to him, Paul, why do you keep kicking against me? Why do you keep persecuting me? Now think about this. If Jesus is saying that, even though he is, he is physically ascended, he is safe in the, in the presence of his father, but his own followers of the way are getting tortured and persecuted and killed. Jesus says, you're doing this to me. So the quick kind of drive by application we need to make in this is that Jesus owns our suffering. Jesus told his disciples, when the world is against you, don't freak out about that. They're against me. They hate me. If we truly belong to Christ and this persecution, in a sense, belongs to him, then it's up to him to bring us comfort. It's up to him to bring us healing. It's up to him to protect us so that we're not left uh, to the wolves beyond what we can handle. God, Jesus is saying all of that in this statement. Paul is reminding a listening audience all of these things. Paul himself went through an immediate and drastic change at his conversion. He was running so hard down the road of persecution that he needed such an interruption to that life so that he could retrain and refocus on what it means to actually follow the one he was trying to persecute. So Paul says that I, I went away to the desert for three years. He goes, I didn't go talk to other people in the church. I don't think they would have had him right away. They all knew who he was. They were all freaked out by him. He says, I needed to reset my brain and retrain my life so much under the guidance of the Holy Spirit that I just left and remained in the desert for three years, walking with Jesus. So when Paul says he's an apostle, it's because he is truly a companion of Jesus. He was one directly called by Jesus. He was an eyewitness to the resurrection. The physical reincarnated Jesus appeared to him, a resurrected Jesus. And Paul's messages were supernaturally confirmed by the works of the Spirit. These are all things that made him a true apostle. This is why the office of apostleship had ended. Paul said, after me, it was going to be done. So in doing so, he reminds them, I belong to Christ. You belong to Christ. You're the church at Corinth. 
Do little C on Corinth. We do little W on Waterville, perhaps, because church of God becomes our primary identity. Here's the second thing I'd like us to see in this real quickly. Is that we receive peace. The title of this message was called A Strange Path to Peace. We're going to see some strange paths as we're going through this letter. Because if your mindset expects this kind of thing walking through the door. And something much smaller you think comes through the door. You're going to say well that's not what I expected. And you're not going to give it its credibility and its credence. And so this is what Paul is trying to correct. So instead of saying, there's some wordplay that's going on in the language. Instead of saying typically what you would do here, saying hello and shalom. It's, it's very appropriate to open a letter or to even, even when they had some hostility and all these kinds of things, they were expecting to hear Paul say, hey, greetings, good to see you. Uh, and also peace. You know, I, I don't wish you any ill will. I want things to go well with you. Like horizontally, I want peace to be in your life. I wish that on you. Paul says it a little bit differently. When he says grace and peace, here's what he's really saying. What's being conveyed in the original languages. Um, Hello, I'm Paul. I know you're the church in Corinth. Um, Help to you. I mean, you really need it. Paul, how about a hello? (laughs) No, no, no. What I care about is that you get help. Grace, in this instance, is is the help that comes down from God. So Paul says, what you need first and foremost is help from God. What will then be produced is a peace that comes from God. Paul is less concerned about him and his people having a little bit of friction in their life. He's more concerned about their standing before Jesus Christ. So even if, here's the implication, even if things are a little bit dicey between you and me, but they're good between you and the Lord, because, you know, human beings, we don't see eye to eye all the time. Even the disciples had moments where they had to split up and do things differently because they had different ideas. Paul says, I'm going to make a less, uh, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to make that the smaller matter in our relationship if I have confidence that you and your God are tight. That you are walking with the one who rescued you. So Paul says, hi, I'm Paul. You're Corinth. Um, I hope you get all the help and the peace with God that you need. Most people, in my observation, find comfort in the chaos. This peace that continues to elude people. They, they want, we fantasize about life being kind of wrinkle free and going smoothly and going easily. But it's very, very difficult for us to find that. And I think it's because most people find a strange comfort in chaos. And you might say, oh, that's a little weird. I don't think a lot of people wish for that. I think if it could be articulated, it might say something like this. Even though my life is tumultuous, it is the life I know. We can't underestimate the human heart's want or desire to control a situation. And even if that means that we get to control a bad situation or an uncomfortable situation, as long as it's something we're familiar with, we'll take it. The Corinthian church was about to accept the upheaval of their church. It was about to accept the the shaking of their foundation because they wanted to follow leaders who had substantive results, the things they could touch and see and witness. 
They wanted their reputation to be built on things others could be impressed by, which is who we are. It's what we do in our flesh. Don't we trade in God's best for that which we can see and touch? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. There's a couple of test questions. We're going to wrap this up. How well do you practice submission? In my notes, I have the word practice bolded and italicized because it's a very key word in that question. We can practice the thing that we often think is just a personality trait. They're a compliant person. They're meek and mild. They're this and that. Submission is an action. Submission is a matter of the will. How often do you and I truly practice submission? If we're waiting for our opportunities to submit to an authority greater than ours or to have our perceptions of what we think we need smashed, We can't wait until we're being tested in the moment. We have to practice it ahead of time. If you're in your prayer life and you started to evaluate, how often do I ask God to meet my needs versus how little I ask him to light my path, how how little I ask him to show me what he's requiring of me. Lord, send me my marching orders. I'm ready to obey. How much of our prayer lives are are focused, if we have a prayer life, how often are our prayer lives even focused on what I can receive based on what will make me feel fulfilled? How about at the, at, at the, uh, at the office, on the job site, in the classroom, at the hospital, wherever it is we work? Can we find places in which we will practice submission? Even insignificant things, we are like, the spirit's not in this. This isn't a biblical thing that I, that I, um, uh, give up my coffee break for someone else to be able to go and everything. I mean, where's a verse that says anything about that? Can we go into situations and say, Lord, show me opportunities that I can yield my preferences and my pleasures for the good of somebody else? Whether, here's the key, whether they see it or not. We say this often in marriage counseling when we're trying to give out some homework and some things to do. We're asking spouses to do something that would put a smile on the other person's face, something that would be a blessing to their spouse, even if they didn't even know you did it. That the thanks and the, the, uh, the, the appreciation is not the goal. It's us getting outside of ourselves and thinking about the other person. We can practice these things. What about at home? A few, uh, a couple months back, we talked about the, the role of a wife and we talked about how it equals that word as one of the characteristics submission. But, uh, we were also quick to point out that this could go both ways. That if we get all locked up in our roles and everything's got to be this black and white thing, I mean, most relationships, most successful marriages even, find harmony in a balance of submission, some mutual submission, some give and take. Because our pride starts giving way to wisdom. Remember, if the church is in Corinth and it answers to Achaia and then therefore answers to the history books so that we can look back and see how it's being done, then how we do marriage, how we go into the workplace, how we handle our friendship relationships, we belong to somebody higher than us. We answer to somebody greater than us. We answer to even a culture around us that is looking to see how we do these things. 
So we're summing it up. True peace is available to all who will surrender ownership to Christ. There are some that are never going to have a peaceful existence. Maybe some in this room. Maybe you're too picky or you're prideful. No one, here's your warning. No one will ever meet your standards. You keep waiting for that perfect person, that perfect friendship, that perfect boss to come along. It ain't happening. Maybe you continue to butt your head into a brick wall and you think, man, everything's wrong with the world around me. But maybe it's you. Maybe there are some people in here that are faithful and you're, you're, you're struggling with the fact that your relationships still aren't clicking. Keep in mind that not all peace horizontally is up to you. You might be trying to seek peace with somebody that is not peaceful. Somebody that is not at rest. Somebody that is not surrendered to the will of God. You may be doing everything exactly as you should and you may be receiving nothing but chaos in return. Be encouraged. That's the Lord's doing in their life that they're going to have to listen to. Maybe you're timid. Maybe you can relate a little bit to what Paul would have been tempted to be. Maybe you've mistaken the definition of peace as the absence of conflict. I don't want things between us to have friction. I want to be good. I want to be pleasing to them. Do we take the mindset of Paul that says it matters more that their, their vertical relationship with God is intact, even if ours suffers a little bit? Sometimes, sometimes to put it strangely, we need to lose in order to win. I wonder if you would engage this week with me as I try to apply what I'm saying to you. What are the instances, what are the situations I can walk into intending to lose? Does that mean I won't stand up for right or wrong? No. But there's a whole lot I fight for that just is what I like. It's not right or wrong. It's just how Brent needs his kingdom built. Maybe I walk into this saying, how do I give up some of that? How do I intentionally lose? Maybe in a silly way, someone says, I think we should go this way to get to the game. And I said, no, this route, this route's better. Why would I argue with that? Who cares? Take a different route. Make somebody else happy. Maybe we go into situations trying to lose. Some of you have been living this out. Some of you have been doing well with this. I'm going to encourage you to keep being willing to be on display. Bring peace to the chaos that surrounds you. Our world is full of it. So I hope this encourages us. I hope that we see where we're going in this letter and that is going to be supremely practical to us if we will surrender to what the Lord has for us. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to close in prayer and then we're going to give up these rooms. Our ladies are going to stay behind here. Um, and then our men are going to go out to the hub out in the, um, out in the entryway there. And we're going to see what, uh, other instructions and encouragement the Lord has for us. God, we thank you so much, Lord, for blessing this place. We thank you so much, Lord, for holding us in your hand. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've given the people of faith. Encourage them, Lord, with what they've heard today. I pray that we all walk away seeking to find what we can lay down for you even if nobody sees it or addresses it. Lord, we know who we're doing it for. Guide us in wisdom. Use us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.